death is is fundamentally affecting all of our desires to achieve and all our desires to mm. create and all our desires to you know feel like we're contributing in some way. So if you build a building or if you build a nuclear weapon or you start a war, these are all death incentivized. These are all come from death. Leo, my heart used to be all the earth above me. Tom Waits. I guess I should say. That was Tom Waits singing about being dead and all. Lay your head where my heart used to be on the earth above me. He's singing the song from the grave. Why did we open with Tom Waits? Because this week's special, super special, super cool episode of Tangentially Speaking features a young woman named Caitlin Doty, who's a licensed mortician and founder of the Order of the Good Death. Caitlin was born on a balmy August evening on the very unmorbid shores of Oahu, Hawaii. Uh, she's an interesting woman, as you'll hear. Uh, sort of uh, a woman with a mission, and her mission is to bring a healthier, more balanced, more mature appreciation of death to our death-deprived, death-ridden world. When I say death-deprived and death-ridden, uh, you know, there's as much death in our world as in any other world, in any other social sphere, but we hide from it, Right. And one of the things you'll notice if you go to Spain, go to Barcelona, where I've lived for 20 years now, 20 some years, you go to the famous Bocaria market on the Ramblas, where all the tourists go. One of the things you'll notice when you walk into that market is the dead animals. There are dead rabbits hanging from hooks. There are lambs, there are ducks and chickens and things that are dead animals. And as an American, you get used to not seeing dead animals. You get used to thinking of hamburger as if hamburger grows in a tree or a bush or, you know, it's a, a root vegetable or something. It's actually a ground up, you know, dead body is what it is. And uh, we forget that. And we forget that because we're encouraged to forget that because we never see the death around it. We never hear the screaming of the pigs being slaughtered, as I've heard in various countries around the world, most recently on the beach in Goa in Arambol, we would hear the pigs screaming. I mean, if you've never heard a pig being killed, 
you're missing something. Uh, you know, because next time somebody tells you animals don't feel fear or grief or a full range of emotions, you can tell them they're full of shit because you heard a pig freaking the fuck out because it knew it was about to get killed. Um, as I can tell you, they are, they know what's going on and they don't like it one bit. Um, anyway. There's no death in our world, you know, like as I record this, my father's in the hospital. I've been going in there every day to, to see him. Um, and we hospitals are largely places where old people go to die, um, you know, out of sight. Uh, I don't think my father's dying. He seems to be getting better. Thank you for asking. Um, but the point is, I've spent a lot of time in hospitals. I worked in hospitals in Spain for quite a while, um, working with Spanish physicians on various things. But the point is that we, we, um, put death out of sight because we want it out of mind because it freaks us out. And so we don't like uh, to talk about death. We don't like to see death. And yet we're fascinated by it because uh, on a very deep instinctive level, we all know that death is part of life. And we may be one of the only animals that consciously knows that this whole thing ends with death um you know those pigs knew that something really nasty was happening and they were about to become bacon but i don't think a pig sort of grows up with this existential despair uh that uh human beings often have there's some very interesting research uh, you might want to google called terror management theory it's a whole branch of psychological research um showing how people respond in very powerful uh subconscious ways to reminders of of the presence of death of the inevitability of death uh they tend to get um much more sort of aggressive and um biased against outsiders and things like that for example i think one of the um, one of the research projects, and there are probably at this point, there are probably over a hundred different pieces of research uh, investigating this area. But they, the uh, grad students uh, just set up shop on a sidewalk on a street. I don't remember where they were. Let's say Madison, Wisconsin. So they're on the street and they uh, would just stop people randomly and ask them, what do you think uh, would be the appropriate prison sentence or the appropriate um, the, uh, response to someone who enters this country illegally, right? With, with nobody, with, not with bad intentions, not a terrorist, just somebody, you know, whatever, uh, your typical Latin American you know, crosses the border trying to get some work, whatever. Um, so they asked people these questions and, the you know, there was a range of answers from nothing to a month in jail to a year in jail to, you know, whatever, to 10 years in jail. So they set up a spectrum of different responses and they got a, they got a baseline, you know, reading from your average person you would say the certain, you know, whatever it was, a month in jail or whatever. And then they they did the same questions to the same people in the same town, even on the same street, I believe, but they just moved down a little bit past a funeral parlor so that the people who came upon them had 
been primed to realize that death happens just because they walked by the funeral parlor. Nobody said anything about death. Nobody mentioned the funeral parlor. So the only variable was now they're asking people in front of this funeral parlor. And the responses were significantly more aggressive. So where they might have said a month in jail, now they say a year in jail. The the response to the outsiders is much more sort of turbocharged and, and angry and um, punitive. Punitive is the word I was looking for. Um, anyway, so there are. We are an animal who knows we're going to die, but we're also an animal who spends an inordinate amount of time and energy pretending we don't know this. And Caitlin Doty is someone who's calling bullshit on that and doing her best to cultivate an intelligent, informed um, relationship with death. And and she's she's a very interesting person, a beautiful person, phys, you know, in her presence, she's a a lovely woman and um with a lovely apartment and uh yeah, not morbid or gross or creepy or any of those things that you might associate with death. So the theme song of this podcast as always is Carsey Blanton's beautiful smoke alarm which if you listen to the lyrics you realize is about death um uh it's a very carpe diem sort of song i encourage you to listen to the lyrics you can check out more of her music at carcyblanton.com she's got a tip jar and a policy of letting people download whatever they want uh leave some money if you if you can um if not then then you don't uh she's she's that kind of gal carcyblanton.com c-a-r-s-i-e blanton b-l-a-n-t-o-n.com you can also uh check out sure design t-shirts our one and only sponsor at this point and uh pretty much the only sponsor we need they are great they're based in chiang mai thailand uh, which is one of the the home of some of the best food I've ever had, I got to say. I, I spent several months in Chiang Mai over the years, and I like that place a lot. Um, anyway, SureDesignTshirts.com. They put together the, the Sex of Dawn shirts that we've got on our website, ChrisRyanPhD.com. Uh, you can get them for 20 bucks if you're in the U.S. If you're outside the U.S., we'll have to see what the postage is. It gets a little steep. Uh, the shirts are designed by Levy Greenacres, L-E-V-I Greenacres, A-C-R-E-S, uh, .com. And he's got a book called Mommy's New Tattoo, which you can check out at his website or on Amazon.com. Very cool book. And as always, stop by feralaudio.com. Check out some of the other podcasts they've got there, particularly the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, which is responsible for me getting into this racket in the first place. Duncan's fantastic. He's part of the whole crew with Joe Rogan, Ari Shafir, and the other folks I've been hanging out with lately in Los Angeles. Um, so that uh, you've already heard the Tom Waits song. And uh, later in the podcast, please don't be confused, there's going to be a musical break, but because this musical break stuff is new to us, I didn't uh, mention it during the recording. So at some point, you're going to hear Sibel, a Brazilian singer, do another version of the same song, Green Grass by Tom Waits. So you get a, a very different feel for the same music. Hope you enjoy it.
Thanks. Said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time? Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. Everybody out there in tangential world, this is Dr. Christopher Ryan. Today I'm joined by a very interesting woman named Caitlin Doty, who is a mortician, believe it or not. I feel like I'm in an episode of Six Feet Under. You are. Yeah. She's not only a mortician, she's Mind young melt. and attractive and not at all, you know, not pale particularly. I'm, I'm particularly pale, well, I would say. I would I mean, argue that I'm pretty pale. In present company, I, you know, compared to me, mm-hmm. uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost is tanned. Yeah. Well, you have, at least you have freckles though mine it's yeah. just like a barren white <laughs> landscape <laughs> exactly exactly and i've got her cat on my lap here uh t- tell me again the cat's name the, the cat, i call it the meow i call the her meow. the meow is it um, the two words or is that merged it, no it's, it's it's one no it's two words, two the words. Meow. It's, the a, meow. it's an official right. title say hi more. to the meow say hi to the meow the meow S- shit on the carpet again yes the exactly the scratching meow. the car mm-hmm. yeah, okay. sometimes in in rage i'll call her just meow like oh. someone would call, like a mother would call a child by his full name. Or kid. I'll call her, yeah, or kid. <laughs> I will call her by her short name. She'll be like, meow! And she does something particularly odious. But she was actually, my aunt breeds Siamese, like high-level Siamese. High-level. Royalty. Yeah, royalty. It's just the royalty of the Siamese world. And uh, originally her name, her show name was Kauai King Kaluamoa Ipolani. That sounds Hawaiian. It is Hawaiian, yes. So I'm I'm from Hawaii. I was born and raised in Hawaii. Ah, And my aunt is on Kauai. And okay. she she breeds these cats. So they and don't get Siamese names; they get Hawaiian names. They get Hawaiian names, yeah. yeah. Although she also breeds Chinese Sharpei dogs, uh-huh. and they also they get Chinese names. Uh-huh. I'm not exactly sure about uh-huh. the reasoning behind. And this. do the cats and the dogs commingle, or are they in separate? Some zones? of them do. They both they both have better lives. They all have better lives than I do. They yeah. all have like very extensive, beautiful pens and, and uh-huh. runs and things. Outdoor cat daily cages, massage. yeah. Daily massage, yeah. shiatsu at two. <laughs> shiatsu. Um, <laughs> For the Siamese, <laughs> Siamese shiatsu. It's a it's a it's a growing field. Yeah, um, exactly. But yeah, they have they have wonderful. Some of them do. I think some of the older ones. She's pretty old now. She's about eleven, wow. and I got her when she was about five. And the reasoning behind it is that if you, according to my aunt, which has turned out to be true, that if you have a cat that has been in the show ring and has been bred and just been sort of picked at their whole lives, they all they want to do is chill. Yeah. And they're just so happy that someone just wants them to like sit on their lap and yeah. doesn't really want anything from them. And so she's just this like amazing pliable cat who will do anything that one asks of her, except be quiet when I want her to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad we started, you know, this lived up to its name by just talking oh, about my cat right. for, right. we'll, forever we'll alone. For an hour I'd like then, to, oh, I'd yeah, like to specifically minute. address my best friend in the whole world <laughs> to begin this to begin this podcast today. <laughs> Is that today. your cat, the meow? <laughs> yes, the, me- the meow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sad. Well, I had a cat once. Uh, there was a, a part, a uh, Tonkinese, so it mm-hmm. sort of looked like a Siamese, that right. cafe con leche. Mm-hmm. Color, um, but more fluffy and yeah. That fluff really is very cute. Yeah. That fluff oh, element. she was so cute. And my girlfriend at the time, who was Spanish, we were living in San Francisco. She was a street cat, and my girlfriend at the time wanted to call her um, Misha. Mm-hmm. So we called her Misha. Okay. Then we moved back to Spain with mm-hmm. the cat, 
And only then did I realize that in Spain, Misha basically means cat. Oh. So I thought it was so like exotic. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, El Gato, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's, you know, like Pussycat or, you know, whatever. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's uh, a, so I realized it was kind of a really dumb name by the time we got to Spain, but <laughs> well, it was I too w- late. I wanted to name the meow. I wanted to name her Liebchen, which is kind of well, the German, German word for, for yeah. sweetheart. And it's actually the name of Angelica Houston's cat in The Witches, which was ah. one of my favorite movies growing up. Mm-hmm. But I was living in San Francisco and I had a roommate and she was like, Lieber, Lieber, Sean, what's the cat's <laughs> name? And she just couldn't. Leaving's around. Yeah, she just couldn't get it. And so I was like, all right, the meow. Yeah. yeah. You'll be able to deal Keep with that. Right. All right. Okay. Well, uh, enough with the cats. Although this, it's going to be hard to ignore the cat, which is on my lap demanding affection. She's a little slut. She's a little slut. She sure is. Good. Um, Okay. So you are a mortician. We met the other day when we were both on the death panel of a TV Mm -hmm. show called The Point, which people can uh, find on YouTube. Mm -hmm. It's the special death Death episode. (laughs) Starring. Everyone will be running out to see. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so I guess I, basically I just want to like, how the hell does a nice girl like you end up in a place like this? <laughs> you know? That's- yeah, yeah, that's actually a good way to to ask it. People a lot lately, people have been like, "What was your childhood like? Yeah, why it must did this? Have been why, really what, dark. what happened to you?" And, yeah. I was, and I'm always like, "Uh, you know, it was kind of fine. I grew up on a tropical island. Yeah. It was real nice there. People are kind. Um, so I think I definitely had a lot of morbid inclinations growing." up. I had a couple of experiences that led me um, to just be really, really interested in the history of death and the culture of death and the really? aesthetics of death. Oh. And I went to college. No, this is as a kid. This is a, this is a kid and a teenager. So how, yeah. if you don't mind talking about it, how, I mean, because that's kind of complex, right. sophisticated existential concern for a teenager. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so I, yeah, I was a very existential, yeah. existential teenager. Do you think say. is that uh, without meaning to pry, but mm-hmm. do you think, is that related to experiences or do you think that's yeah, an inborn oh, trait? Oh, def- well, I think, you know, I think it's kind of both. I, I have to imagine that it's both because I've had um, a couple of different experiences, which I'll definitely share with you if you'd like, that I think certainly are the root of of the way that I am now. But I also, I just can't imagine that this wasn't also, I, it's, I feel it so strongly and my interest mm. is so strong that I can't imagine it wasn't also just a natural inclination that has right. grown over the years because um, I don't think I don't think if I was just trying to like get over childhood stuff and figure and that's what you know people will say like oh she's just messed up and she actually you know you right. couldn't be this interested in death if you weren't it's not healthy yeah and you yeah, yeah. were messed up from yeah. childhood somehow yeah. which I don't think is true at all I think that I think that definitely what I'm doing now has been an effort to figure out and work through some things in childhood, but it's also because the problem of death is so huge and fascinating right. and, and complex and interesting and goes into historical and psychological and physiological yeah. and all these really cool issues that can be interdisciplinary and combined. Um, but yeah, when I was young, I, um, I did see a really traumatic, um, death when I was about eight years old. Oh. I was at a, a shopping mall and a little girl climbed up on the railing of the big, you know, big atrium second floor and just sort of plummeted <sighs> off. And they took, you know, everybody crowded around and they were screaming and the mother was shrieking, shrieking. And 
I saw it and they took the body away and nobody would really give us any information about it, even though we tried to find it. And it was pre-internet and pre all that. So it was really hard to find. So I wasn't actually even, I mean, it's possible that she survived in some sort of weird, you know, altered, having plummeted, you know, 30 feet state. Um, But I don't even know that, which is kind of a a modern condition too, of, Mm. you know, kind of like the soldier who goes off to war and we never find his body and we just assume that he's dead. But this is all a lot for an eight year old. Especially, I mean, given the real, the real point is that death is so hidden in our culture now that we don't really get to properly interact with it. So a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, I would have been like, oh, well, there's, you know, lots of, you know, five of my friends died this year because a lot of kids didn't live that long. And, you know, my mom's dead and I have all these relatives that are dead and my neighbors are dead. And oh, there's some bodies in the street to know I took part in these funeral rituals. And they died at home. They died at home. Exactly. They died at home. And now it's like, well, I don't know. They, I saw this really traumatic thing and I never really thought about death as a real thing before. And then they carted her off and I don't know what happened. And, and then nobody talked about it. So I was just kind of like, ah, you know, and that was really, I mean, I think that, and because I think I'm already predisposed to sort of like existential, um, experiences. And when I was eight, it was just like, ah, like weight of the world and the questions on my shoulders. And I was able to repress it for many years, but then I, I really, I think in high school really started to explore it. And that's what really helped me is, you know, I think it's probably the same as sexuality. Like once you, if you repress it bad, explore it good. And you may make some false starts in exploring it, but you know, if you work really hard at it and you're really interested in it, you come to some really satisfying conclusions. And that's sort of the journey that I'm on now mm. with, with being just a day to day mortician. And then with the larger projects that I have, you know, as you were talking, you're saying people sort of dismiss this as, uh, you know, your, your interest in, in death and the processes involved with death and all that. Um, you're trying to work through stuff, mm-hmm. you know, or, or exploring, issues from childhood but isn't pretty much every adult life in some way at least any adult life that's actually uh you know well lived i think right. is trying to f- trying to explore things that bother us or mm-hmm. i remember carl jung i think it's in his autobiography says something about um you know pay special attention to people and ideas that really bother you oh absolutely you know because yeah. that's where you'll find yes. yourself you mm-hmm. know there's a reason that resonates yeah this, yeah yeah death death bothers me every day and people not so much death is, is people's relationship with death and the way that we interact with death it just yeah. every day i just look at it and i'm like oh yeah if i could just get in there and you know and sometimes it's if i could get in there and tell you what to do and then sometimes yeah. it's like if i could get in there and figure it out myself because i have no clue i'm a bumbling around the universe as an idiot just as everybody else is right um, but you know it's so it's, but yeah absolutely if, if something bothers you then that's yeah that's don't okay. run away from it and, and on right. a cultural level it is something we talked about the other day on this on this mm-hmm. show I, I definitely agree with you i think our culture is is uh sort of characterized by our avoidance mm-hmm. of death i remember when uh first time i got to spain and still it's Western culture. There's still a lot of, you know, bullshit and denial and everything. But, uh, I went to the famous market in Barcelona called the Bocaria. It's one of these big outdoor markets, you know, with everything on sale there. And they've got, um, you know, rabbits mm-hmm. hanging by their legs right. with blood in their mm-hmm. eyes. And they're just like, it's a dead rabbit, mm-hmm. you know? 
And, you know, first of all, the fact that they eat rabbits kind of freaked me out, you know, because in this country, Bunnies. rabbits are, you know, yeah. it's like cats. Um, secondly, that the rabbit's just like, it's just a dead rabbit. Mm-hmm. It's not in plastic wrap with styrofoam. It's right. not, you know, de-blooded or mm-hmm. de, it's, it's, it's not unrecognizable mm-hmm. as a dead animal, which yeah. seems to be what we do here. You know, that's not a dead cow. That's a burger, you yeah. know, like, oh, <laughs> ra- well, I don't know. Um, yeah, but and and the funny thing is the reason they have the rabbits like that that they don't like cut them up and all that, is because during the Spanish Civil War, which was a terrible time in mm-hmm. Spain, a lot of poverty, people were selling cats as rabbit. I didn't know that. Yeah, so you really you get a paella with little bits of you know mm-hmm. quote unquote rabbit, which was actually cat, mm-hmm. and so to to assure people that yeah. they were actually getting rabbit, they had to sell them. Want to know, know your carcass? Yeah, because they look very similar right. skinned. Yes, apparently. I, yeah, sign when they're hanging like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so. really fascinating. Well, I think American culture, especially. I think has been so successful because of the denial of death. Because mm. when you, when you're denying death, death really makes it's a humbling experience. If you're really accepting death and what it's doing to you and what it's doing to your psyche and the fact you'll ultimately die into your framework, it's kind of, it's a really humbling experience. But if you're just sort of bullishly going through denying it, there's a lot of hubris there. Yeah. So you're able to create this whole, you know, the sort of American freedom and expression and a lot of that in a way kind of comes, not to be unpatriotic, but kind of comes from a place of bald faced death denial consumerism. Yeah. As it's all really connected to. I'm not going to die. I'm optimistic. The world is great. Right. I'm a powerhouse. I'm a god. Yeah, yeah, I'm a Gods god. Gods don't die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an I'm an immortal thing. America's the best. And you know, yet, that really comes from that. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I think it, it's also it's also ironic in a sense because even the stronger that impulse gets, the stronger that sort of belief system becomes, the more. Uh, short-term thinking takes over our mm-hmm. politics and our right. economics and everything. You know, I think of the the famous thing, I think it's the Iroquois who every time they had to make a major decision, the Iroquois nation got together. There mm-hmm. are all these, I think, seven different tribes. And in fact, the Iroquois political system is thought to have been the inspiration for the uh, bicameral legislature mm-hmm. in the United States government that, that Benjamin Franklin knew about the Iroquois and, and liked the checks and balances mm-hmm. system that he saw there. But anyway, not to get off on them, but, but they would, when they had to make a major decision, they would say, okay, how is this going to affect seven generations into the right. future? That's how we need to make mm-hmm. this decision. And we, we are so, even in our culture, we were still, you know, there's a lot of lip service paid to you know our children and our children's right, children. Yes, yes. But Which you look at service. what they actually yeah. do. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, uh, we don't know what to do with nuclear waste. Well, yeah, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, the the ice caps are melting. Yeah, well, whatever. You know, right. I'm gonna. It's not gonna affect me. Right. You know, I'll be dead in 30 years. So well, who and, gives and a having shit? to admit that you're responsible for nuclear waste or you're responsible for climate change or you're responsible for any of these things, kind of diminishes us as humans presently alive Mm. you know and if our if our whole goal is to you know and and ernest becker which we both we both are acolytes of um who wrote the denial of death death, um, which i you know preach like a bible basically like carry it around on the pulpit and wave it around um is that death is is fundamentally affecting 
all of our desires to achieve and all our desires to mm. create and all our desires to, you know, feel like we're contributing in some way. So if you build a building or if you build a nuclear weapon or you start a war, these are all death incentivized. These are all come from death. Uh, because we're trying to, to create something that will outlive us. Right. Yeah. yeah we're trying to create immortality symbols. We're trying to, we're trying to have, we have our, our hero complex going on. So right. we're trying to create something that show that demonstrates that we're a power, mm. you know? So if you're trying to do that in your lifetime, you know, you're not really going to, you're not really going to think too much about the future because you're thinking about your immortality vis-a-vis -vis what you can actually experience in your own life, right? which is very short term. Hey, not that short term. <laughs> Come on. It is. Life is our lives are, when you think about the people who have lived on <laughs> yeah, this planet, I know, I know. it's our lives are just tiny. We were like Believe an ant, the ant that you... You know, washed away in the sink yesterday. You know what? I, I just turned 50 this year. Mm -hmm. I'm about to turn 51. And tough. thank you. My, uh, my, my sense of mortality grows mm -hmm. much more, uh, intense with, with past because you, I mean, there are all these things I didn't really think about. You know, everyone's heard this story. Um, you know, when you're young, you don't think about how it feels like, you know, you look at somebody like Mick Jagger. He's old, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when I was a kid, Mick Jagger was a little older than me, but he was like, you know, virility, sexuality. Mm -hmm. Now he's old, you know, or, you know, you see people who were young, dead, or, you know, I watched, I was been watching American football a little bit recently. And, you know, it's like, wow. So the guy who I remember as the quarterback is now like this old dude doing commentary about mm -hmm. to retire. Like, right. when did that happen? Even, you know? even like boy bands from when I was in middle school. <laughs> yeah. You look at them now and yeah. you're like, oh, sure. What the has, partridge what has, family. What has life done to you? <laughs> and and also, traits. I mean, for me, it's weird because I, I've been out of the U.S. for about 20 years and now I've just come back. And so it is like there's you know, 20, 25 years that I wasn't paying attention at all. And so I haven't like seen these people mm -hmm. for 20 years. And then it's like, Oh, it's like seeing a friend you haven't seen since high school. And like, Holy shit. Wait, which is interesting yeah. because that's when I was growing up. So it's kind of like you went away and yeah. I, you know, and that's, started that's to become cognizant were, right? and that's where yeah. I was right in that. And it, it, it really influences your, and I'm discovering that more and more now, just how much that influences how much you just get filtered. There's a thing I think I can't remember who it is, but he says it's a um, an anthropologist who says we're all just caught in webs of significance. Sounds like Wade Davis. But yeah, it might be actually. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're just all caught, you know, even if we can see through it, we're still just completely caught in these things, cultural things that trap us. Yeah. So when people are always like, you know, I can't believe I'm so, I, you know, I hate how afraid of death I am. I hate how afraid of my immortality I am. I, I you know, you got to forgive them because they're caught in yeah. their culture. They're caught in what we've been taught. Yeah. I've, I've had an, an ongoing debate with, with, uh, one of my very best friends for decades now, um, about, oh, this, this will sound so pretentious, but I remember we were, we were at Mont Saint Michel mm -hmm. in France, which is this, ah, oui. yeah, yeah, oui, Mont Saint Michel. Uh, this beautiful, uh, what is it? It's like, it's like a medieval village mm -hmm. castle built on this little island. It, well, it's an island when the tide is in, and then it's when the tide is out, you can walk right out to mm -hmm. it. So it's a really spectacular spot. I remember we were sitting out there on the rocks one night and, uh, talking about, 
the pyramids. <laughs> and <laughs> this does sound really pretentious, but it's yeah. an awesome story. <laughs> it just keeps getting better. <laughs> Continue. Well, I mean, the pyramids must be, you know, one of the most uh, outrageous denials of death, mm-hmm. you know, ever, right? Right. And and I remember, you know, we were, we were essentially arguing about whether or not uh, civilization is worth the trouble, mm-hmm. which is a book I'm working on now, yeah, but it's been a is, long yes, a time coming. That's a daily question that yeah. I have as well. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's an engineer. Uh, he's a religious guy. He's got kids. You know, he's invested in, in the world as it is. And, you know, I, on the other hand, have always felt a sense of detachment and like, yeah, all right, I'll hang around, but I'm not, I don't like it. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not, <laughs> not gonna, gonna like it. You can't make me like eating <laughs> you your peas exactly. or something. You can't make me like it. <laughs> yeah. I've been very resistant in some ways. Um, but anyway, we were talking about the, the pyramids and, you know, he was talking about, you know, I said, well, what what have we ever done as a species that's really so fucking spectacular, mm-hmm. you know? And he said, the pyramids. And I was like, Jesus, the pyramids. I look at the pyramids. I see hubris, yep. ego, uh, ignorance, slavery, immense suffering. You know, I, I, like, okay, fine. They're, you know, they're, they're beautiful at sunset, but... Was it worth it? Fuck no. Yeah. It's funny. The American funeral industry especially loves the Egyptians. Uh-huh. Like we, the, the whole, it's so funny when I went to, went to uh, mortuary school, mortuary science schools, which mm. is where you go to get your degree in mortuary science. Which is what, a, after a BA or how after, does that it de- work? It depends. I got it after a BA, but you can also get it. Um, I think you can actually get a BA in mortuary science. Mm. You can get just a like trade school AA degree. Depends on your state, really, right. and what they're going to accept. Right. Um, so I went after a BA, but and you did this in California. I did this in California, yes. And uh, they the whole there's this whole narrative wrapped up in the Egyptians as being the original embalmers and being uh-huh. the original, the great memorializers. Right. So there's never been a better time in history for memorializing the dead than the ancient Egyptians. Right. And, you know, nothing we could ever do could ever live up to the standard. And absolute, and so a ton is taught about that. Not a single word is ever mentioned about really fascinating death cultures from the Native Americans right. or from, um, you know, just Madagascar, places around the world where they do things that are so different from our own death traditions. Like they, mm. you know, leave bodies out to be on platforms to be eaten by animals or they they have secondary burial where they come back and clean the bones or dance with the bones or engage with, um, you know, a second, a second funeral rite to be buried or they keep the bodies in the house to decompose or yeah. these things are never taught. What's taught is... Oh, the Egyptians, weren't they amazing? You know, look how well they preserved these bodies. Is that because the Egyptians also were in deep denial about yeah, that? Yeah, I yeah. think I think that there's a so lot of resonates. and while while their style of embalming is in no way correlated to our style of embalming, other than it's a preservative mechanism, yeah. um, which is another kind of little mortuary school lie that they tell you that that's, you know, this grand line of embalmers for thousands and thousands of years, which is not true at all. You know, it was, they did a thing that was preserving and we do a thing now that's preserving. What did they do, the Egyptians? Did they, they drain the blood? Yeah, well, they didn't drain the blood necessarily. They they eviscerated the body. Oh, basically. so they took they all took the organs out. Yeah, out. took all the organs out. They put them in what's called canopic jars, uh-huh. um, which is each one had a little god shape 
shaped. It was like a dog head and a, and a jack or jackal head. You put them all together or different jars? Different jars. One was the heart organs. and oh. one was the intestines and one was the brain, I think. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm actually, interestingly, I feel like I know a fair amount about the Egyptians, but I'm not, that's not my area of expertise. Because every time I get into that, I'm just like, Ugh. you know, I think it just viscerally reminds me of the American funeral industry. And viscerally? The yeah, viscerally. Yeah, da 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 a little intestinal humor. Um, yeah, so it, it has a, it has sort of a negative effect on me. I'm, I'm not as historically interested in right. Egypt just because I think for the exact reasons that you're talking about, right. it's, it's, you know, the fact that we're culturally celebrating them. You know, it, it is interesting. Every death ritual is, and we had an argument about this last time too. I think every death ritual is... I can't say, you know, I can't sit here and be like, oh, those ancient Egyptians were doing it wrong. You know, I don't know. I'm a, you know, 21st century idiot. But at the same time, it rings very true to me that there's a lot of death denial there. There's a lot of, you know, building the Taj Mahal, building a pyramid for just to celebrate the, how we can keep death there forever. Yeah. As opposed to just letting the body go. And if your memory, if your memory is interesting enough to live on, it'll live on somehow, but actually trying to keep your physical body around. The Taj Mahal, that's a tough one. I'm trying to remember. I was there in the Taj Mahal and there's a, have you been there? I've not been there. No. Um, I can't remember. Shah Jahan may have been the name of the, the, the Maharaja who built it. Uh, and originally, his idea was that he was going to, it's built right along a river, mm -hmm. and there was going to be another one right across the river, right. exactly the same, mm -hmm. in black. Right. Yeah. And his wife died giving birth, mm -hmm. and so the he never built the other one, and the, the white one was a tribute to her. And the child who she had given birth to mm -hmm. when she died grew up, deposed his father, and threw him in jail, essentially, mm -hmm. in the Red Fort. And I was sitting there in his cell in the Red Fort. And you can look out and see the Taj right. Mahal. I mean. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> That's not an argument for being slightly detached from civilization. Birth control. Yeah, or birth control. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what is. Uh, all right. I've got a million things I want to ask you about, uh, but I always forget to do the commercial break. Okay. So when it occurs to me, I'm just going to jump on it's it. It's a little death. It's a, it's Commercial a, is a little death. It's not quite an orgasm. It's an orgasm, in the but French it's a little but death. Yeah, it's a little death. A little pause in the action. While I, okay, here we go. First of all, the theme song. Mm -hmm. is uh, by Carsey Blanton. It's called Smoke Alarm. If you like the sound of that song, you can check out her other music at carseyblanton.com. And you can also uh, hear an entire podcast I did with her in the archives. She's a really fascinating person. And the song fits right into the theme of the day. Uh, let's see if I can remember the lyrics. Uh, say, baby, what's the big deal? Feel you, what you're you going to feel. I, I can't okay. sing anything. Okay. Uh, certainly not into a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, say what you're going to say. You're going to die one day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful song. And the whole, the whole thing is like, Hey, what are you waiting for? Mm -hmm. You know, um, why do we waste our time looking for an explanation, running from a confrontation? 
thinking what we're w- thinking what you're going to say when everyone you've ever known is heading for a headstone i don't want to give the end away but you're going to die one day it's a beautiful song <laughs> That's good. my dad yeah. always used to say um, every time my dad has like a running series of jokes that he just pulls out every time and every time we would watch titanic or anything about titanic would come up he's like do you want me to tell you how it ends <laughs> <laughs> you know or like nice. or like spoil like basically like spoiler alert well i'll tell you something about how it ends that you might not know there's a hotel in new york I stayed in recently called mm-hmm. the Jane. Mm-hmm. It's a very cool hotel. It's the West Village. Uh, it was built originally for sailors mm-hmm. to stay there. So the rooms are like a berth on a ship. They're mm-hmm. tiny micro rooms. They're like one step away from those capsules in Japanese right, airports, right. you know, like you walk into the room, there's a little, a you know, a space to stand next to a single bed. There's a shelf above the bed to put your bag. There's a TV, a window, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's like 120 bucks a night. So if you're stuck in Manhattan, it's mm-hmm. relatively uh, affordable. And it's a great location. Man. Anyway, uh, that's the hotel where they took the survivors of the Titanic <laughs> after they brought them back. It's like, hey, here, oh, something that will remind you of a ship. Oh, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You wake up with your PTSD. <laughs> exactly. Oh. All right. So, uh, Carsey Blanton, I've paid tribute to her. Uh, I think we've got a sponsor. By the time this podcast goes out, I believe we'll be sponsored by Sure Design T-shirts. Huh. We should just do a, a fake one in case you're not sponsored by them. You know, it's kind of a fake. Well, I figure even if we're not sponsored by them, they're still really cool. So why not? You know, why not? Sure design t-shirts. Yeah. Yeah. We're working on designs now. And uh, I don't know if they're available by the time you're listening to this. But uh, you can always check it out at uh, either at my site, Chris. Chris, what is my site? ChrisRyanPhD.com or at FeralAudio.com or uh, at SureDesignTshirts.com or SureDesign.com. I'm not sure. Google it. Uh, it's, it'll be, it better it's a be hell the top, of a commercial break, the isn't it? Google result. <laughs> yeah. I, know, I feel like that's much more organic. I feel like, you know, it always weirds me out a little bit when there'll be a podcast and all of a sudden the host will be like, come to da 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 da. And it's a very, very super different like personality. Like kind of canned, yeah, yeah super different canned. sound. Like yeah. AT&T can provide you with the da da da. Well, that's yeah. the problem when I forget to do these commercial mm-hmm. things, then I have to record them later and right. stick them in somehow. So mm-hmm. it sounds completely, you know. I feel like know. that was really organic. I felt like I really felt your love for them. They are lovely. I felt I, like you had a real honest I mean, reaction. Duncan Trussell, who does the podcast, great podcast, you know, when he talks about them, they sponsor or him as well. He goes into this whole thing about how they're made, you know, from the pubic hair of Thai children. <laughs> and, you know, he really gets into it. I can't quite bring myself to do that yet. We'll see how many t-shirts we sell. If right. we sell a lot, then we'll get I into that. Actually, we should talk about this because I need to get every, you know, everybody, um, who follows the Order of the Good Death, which is the... Oh, that's the other um, thing we need to plug. Yes, you. Right. Well, yes. no, we don't need to plug me. We but, do. But we when, do. Um, you know, people are always like, oh, I wish we had a, you know, I'd make jokes about t-shirts. Like, I'm going to put it on a t-shirt. And there are people out there who seem to actually want those t-shirts. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. especially if they're from the pubic hair of Thai children. Yeah. I think that's a higher quality, probably yeah. a higher quality. Free range. Free, free range. range. Yes, yeah. Free yeah. range. Um, there's, <laughs> there's I'll, a, I'll hook you up. Yeah, yeah definitely. Speaking Bennett, of tangentially uh, speaking, uh-huh. my friend and I have, we went to, she got a storage unit when she first moved to LA in like way out in, in like, you know, Bumble bumble nowhere and 
they had a big sign that said, you are not allowed to engage in commerce out of this storage unit. Um, so we had this idea of just like, you know, little Thai children, like bedazzling things trapped in this storage unit yeah. in like Valencia. Um, <laughs> because, you know, the fact that they had a, like, who, who was engaging and like who was creating, you know, you're not allowed to make things or engage in commerce in these tiny little storage units. And right. it was like, who are, are you keeping like children against their will? To, yeah. to make little things or like what it, what it, what was the problem like what set that up that you Meth. needed to make that warning maybe i mean i've been watching a lot of breaking bad recently right. so Is there i a just lot of think storage, you know, storage unit action yeah, in there well yeah. well they also they also have um there there's some interesting statistics about how many corpses they estimate are in storage units oh, around the country oh right really now. yeah because they find them all the time because that's your sort of natural place to go wouldn't it smell it would, yes. Yeah. But I mean, I guess you could probably, yes, it certainly would. But you can, I think at a certain point, they, they mummify in that, that environment. It's yeah. kind of a nice temperature controlled, right? slightly less, you know, less air and moisture environment. And you, you know, wrap them up in a Persian rug. So are, are there cases of morticians uh, who like work for the mafia and dispose of bodies sure, and stuff. There's, there's yeah. a guy that I used to work with who was, who was an embalmer, who's this really fantastic old, um, old time Oakland embalmer. Um, <laughs> the Oakland embalmers the take embalmers. the field. And he has, he has this really sort of awesome fluctuating voice. Like, uh-huh. And he he'll tell he'll just have stories that he'll tell very very casually uh-huh. about how you know there was a a case where there was a, a funeral home that was burying people was taking out the bottoms of the caskets right. and putting people in there and putting the bed back on and then the actual dead person on so you could you know so, so if you Mrs. double burial yes so uh-huh. if like Miss Miss Wigglesworth the ninety you know the ninety two year old grandmother dies <laughs> and you got they Vito Livoni yeah exactly they put yeah. Vito Livoni underneath her oh, man. Um, and you know and he was just telling the story and is like you know you know when 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 you pick it up and and like grandma's like four hundred pounds and you're like why is this just a little old lady and and you're like, oh, oh you yeah. know, and I think that he, his idea was just like, keep my own nose clean yeah. and observe. I all of see this. nothing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is why he's probably been in the business for you know, 40 years or however long. Wow. Um, but yeah, he definitely has stories about, about that. And I'm sure, I'm sure Oakland isn't even the biggest hotbed for that in the country. I'm yeah. Sure there's probably even more like Chicago or, or Yeah. Well, Chicago, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Hoffa. They're always mm-hmm. talking about where's Jimmy Hoffa. Right, probably I mean, under a 90 year old yeah. woman. <laughs> under Mrs. Eagles. Um, <laughs> yeah, somebody needs to look into that. Yeah, I think I just really, cracked it. Cracked that really, you open. just cracked the case. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you would think that uh, you know mobsters would would have that kind of stuff sorted out. Mm-hmm. You know, why would they? You need would. To be yeah. There was another. There was another story about um, about uh, a crematorium where uh, one of my friends worked there. And said that didn't work at the crematorium, but worked at the funeral home that the crematorium was on and said that the guy would come in at like four in the morning and there would be sort of strange cars coming in and out mm-hmm. and, 
and who worked. And, and sometimes, you know, I had I worked places where the crematory operators worked at night, and that was fine. That's just what they did. It was a shift thing. Um, but apparently, there was, which is totally, you know, that's a that's a good way to do it because there's yeah. there's real there's really strong. I don't want to give the impression that there's not strong regulation on the mm-hmm. cremation industry because there is, but those are all people who are documented. Night you know? shift at the crematorium. That's yeah. a gig. Huh? Mm-hmm. Put that on your resume. Yeah. Yeah. So how how is it regulated? Are there like inspections? Uh, yeah, and, and stuff? It's, it's definitely state by state. But in California, actually, it's pretty strict laws. They um, every person that comes in has a specific serial number that they get, which is a little dystopian too. But it's a specific serial number that stays with them the whole time, um, and then actually goes in on a tag that's cremated with them. So there's a metal tag with our facility name and their specific number that correlates to them that goes in. And so that way, when the ashes are processed at the end, you know, I could take this box of ashes and throw it in, you know, throw it off the side of a building or something, and they'd be able to identify it because hidden in those ashes would be this tag that says... But if you just took the tag out... You could take the tag out, yeah. But no, people aren't usually trying to hide. Well, if you, I mean, if you were cremating a mafia person, for example, right. you just wouldn't put the tag in. You, right. wouldn't, you wouldn't like process the body in that way when they came in. Right. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of like air quality regulations and and things like that. So that, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty well regulated. But of course, there's always ways around everything. What happens to the when someone's cremated and they've got silver and gold fillings and stuff? What that happens just, to that? That just burns up. That burns with them. They, we, yeah, I actually really rarely, it's talked about in sort of a hypothetical way, but really rarely does somebody say, I want those back. And we say, absolutely, you can come in, but we're not going to do that for you. You know, if you want to have your dentist come in and extract, you know, your gold fillings. You can absolutely do that, but we're not gonna, cause that's a huge liability. Right. You know, if I'm in there, cause I've extracted, I've extracted false eyes for people and, and strange things, but I'm totally not qualified to be in. If people are like, hey, I want mom's false eye. That, yeah, that did happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was for a, what? I don't know. I thought it was very, I thought it was strange. I, I, well, I mean, you know, and I didn't think it was strange, but it was strange because they were such a just like, Nice family, right. nice little white family. Um, <laughs> oh, look in their basement. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then, you know, and just like you know what, I think mom would really like the eye. And it's funny because you do this for so long, and you have a lot of conversations that are fairly similar because you're talking about death certificates and talking mm. about how we're going to do a service or whatever right. it is. And then all of a sudden, somebody will say, "You know what, mom really wants the fake eye," and you're like, well, you know, the record kind of skips, <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, okay, I remember that there's still a lot of room for <laughs> weirdness. you know, WTF weirdness in this." Business. Yeah, I didn't um, see that and yeah, coming. so I, yeah, I extract, which is remarkably easy. What, what, what struck me most about the fake eye is that it had veins in it. Like they, they uh. designed them to have little red. Not veins, the capillaries. Right. They like embed those in the fake eye so because like it looks more real. Someone with a hangover. You, right. You can yeah. request yeah. that. Can I yeah. have a hangover? Exactly. Eye, but I guess it, I guess it just makes it look more. Even though it's not moving, obviously, I guess it makes it look yeah. more realistic to have things that an older person would naturally have. Yeah. Huh. Um, but yeah, and I got, you know, cleaned it off real, real, real well and <laughs> packaged it up nice and gave it to, gave it to the wife. I think I actually mailed it. I think she wanted it mailed. She lived in Washington or something and uh, she wanted it mailed. Um, 
but yeah, so people, you know, actually. You don't have to like put a declaration on the package. Contents, one eye. Well, these, these were not uh, human remains because uh, it was, it right. was, you know, disembodied, fake, fake. So eye. when you send the ashes, do you have to declare that yes. somehow? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a special, a you're only allowed, thing. you're only allowed to send ashes via U.S. Postal Service. You can't send it FedEx. You can't, you can't. send it. No. Well, I mean, people, people do in the same way that they would send drugs. Right. That way. Just don't and, say you know, what's just in say, there, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's powder. So why, that's weird. Why, why U.S. Postal Service? Because they want to be able to track it and they want to be able to know because and there's too much liability. I think FedEx is not interested in taking on the liability because, like, if the plane crashes, you lose the right, ashes. Or you, just, or you just lose it, just plumb lose it, you know? Like, Bob, the <laughs> FedEx driver, drops it off somewhere, which is, you know, there's human error everywhere. Yeah, and yeah. if you're not even tracking it that well, there's... I mean, people also, people... The funeral industry is very lawsuit-happy. Mm. You know, people are suing everybody the funeral industry all aggrieved. the time. Yes, yeah. exa- exactly. Yeah. Everybody's very... It's a heightened emotional state. Right. So something that I do... I mean, a lot of... Uh, honestly, when I was working specifically in... Um, as a funeral director, funeral arranger, when I was working with families to do fan- do funerals, a lot of it is talking people off a ledge a little bit over small things, over very small things. Um, like what? Like, you know, like my death certificate is taking two extra days to come in. Uh, they're just looking for a reason to freak out. Yeah, yeah. in a way. And, yeah. and that's, and that you have to not take that personally. Sure. You have to know that it's, you know, if you're doing your, and yeah, I mean, certainly if you do something, if you mess up in some way, take responsibility for it. But for the most part, it's people who, you know, you'll be going along fine and they'll be, thank you so much for what you're doing. And then you say, you know, of course it's going to take, you know, it is Friday, it's Friday afternoon. So it's not going to be until Monday that we perform the cremation and then just, yeah. chaos yeah. ensues and you can never really predict it right. when the chaos is going to ensue and when, when the crying and the screaming and the telling oh, you you're a terrible right. awful person who can't do your job right. is going to happen um, so you just have to kind of have an answer for everything right. and a way to and a way to just eat eat crow basically eat, yeah. eat shit and say you know I'm I'm so sorry I'm so sorry the system is that way I'm so I'm so sorry that it has to be that way um, so you never really know what's gonna what's gonna cause that Stand in the shade of me Things aren't all made of me The weather thing will say It smells like rain today God took the stars and he tossed them Can't tell the birds from the blossoms He'll never be free What do you think about it? How can I say this? I, I've got a friend who's a tattoo artist mm-hmm. and uh, we, we used to talk a lot about how pain exists as a cloud sort of around the person who's suffering. Mm-hmm. And if you're near that person, you suffer too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he would talk about how a tattoo artist, um, you know, obviously there's pre-selection of the sort of person who becomes a tattoo artist, but his, his contention was that, uh, tattoo artists 
spend all day suffering like a dentist really? oh because they're they're because you're in the presence yeah. of someone who's suffering mm-hmm. and you're you're also causing it mm-hmm. in a way right. even though they've asked right. you to you're right. still causing it and you you know you're you're maybe you're listening to music you're thinking about something else but you are like within a foot of someone who's in pain mm-hmm. all day long right. And so his contention was that this leads people to be depressed, to be suicidal, to, you know, because they're in this toxic environment. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you feel that way when you're around people who are suffering so much emotionally that right. is there a way that you process that or protect yourself from it? Or how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a good question. The, the same embalmer from the mafia story mm-hmm. um, used to always say, you know, like, that's why people have al- drugs and alcohol. And the strip clubs. That's why they do all this because, you know, and, that, and that's kind of true. There is a lot, there's a really high rate of alcoholism mm. amongst funeral directors and embalmers um, because it's a way to go home and forget seeing this pain and seeing this death. Um, I, I do it differently, I think, just because I've worked extremely hard on my mental health. I've just, I've decided to take my mental health just as seriously as Mm. physical health. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really have things in place to prevent that from happening to me. And I still, I mean, absolutely. I still have some families really, really affect me. And I don't think that I have to become less empathetic. I still think that I can understand their pain, but, but what has really, really helped me be able to survive in the industry and be able to keep going doing what I'm doing. And now because I'm, you know, I have Ask a Mortician and I have larger projects, people email me with things too. So it's like, it's coming at me that way too. Yeah. Um, is just not having a, not having a problem with my own death and not having a problem with death in general as a concept, because what happens, I think, and what is a real problem with mourning in our country and being able to face death is that, you know, say my, my father died. When my father dies, I'm going to be able to focus on his death, his specific death, the fact that he's gone, my issues with, with him or my issues with his death or whatever it is are going to be very specific. But I'm not going to be thinking, oh, death. What does death mean? Am I going to die? Why do people die? This is so unfair. I'm not going to have any of those questions because I will, I work so hard every day to answer them mm. and, to, and to work towards them. So when I'm in a situation where I'm working with a family, my focus is on their specific problem and their specific family member and their specific desires and wants and what they're trying to do. I'm not sitting there with these, with the weight of these existential questions bigger on my shoulder. And I think there's no, there's no way to not have those questions or have those questions affect you if you're not dealing with them. And a really a good funeral industry thing is the only way out is through, Yeah, which is very through. So like I've really been, through it. I've worked yeah. so hard just yeah. to dive right into the muckiest muck muck right. I possibly can right. and come out the other side, or at least, you know, I'm starting to come out the other side. So that's kind of a, a highfalutin answer for that. But, but the answer is that I think I'm able to do it because I'm not bringing my own mortality fears right into the into the conversation and into the arrangement with the family. You're reminding me of a conversation I had with a friend recently who uh, I think he's about 60 early Mm -hmm. 60s and he's um going through severe depression for the Mm -hmm. first time in his life he's just had a hip replacement Mm -hmm. uh surgery and uh and we were talking and you know i said you know i think my my feeling is 
that what's happening is that this is a guy who has always been super fit, super good looking. He's a musician. He's, you know, very smart. He was a model when he was mm -hmm. young. I mean, he's like, you know, Uber guy, you know, and his, and then suddenly in his late fifties, early sixties, boom. Yeah. He's older mm -hmm. and mortality and the kids yeah. are gone and yeah, and it all hit him at once. Mm -hmm. And I said, like, you know, we all, we all have to pay the rent. But the thing is, like, I feel like I pay it every day. I make mm -hmm. a little payment every right. day. Right. You've avoided paying it right. almost your whole yeah, life. It's like when Wesley Snipes has like $7 million of back taxes. <laughs> exactly. It's like if you would just pay it. Yeah. Pay it as it you go. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. And there day. are penalties mm -hmm. and interest accrues and yes, all that interest shit. Accrues. Yeah. That's yeah. a really good metaphor. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And the other thing you're reminding mm -hmm. me of is something that I come back to time and time again, and, and I'm going to try to write about in this book. I think the culture's finally ready to hear this, this kind of stuff, but, um, which is the importance of, you know, you said, uh, that there's no way out but through. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of the use of hallucinogens and how hallucinogens are such a central, uh, or at least mind altering, uh, altered states of consciousness are a central part of pretty much every traditional culture in the world. And specifically, sacred substances like magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, mm -hmm. peyote, things mm -hmm. like that, um, have been seen uh, as the greatest gift from the gods. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are in this culture where if you get caught with, uh, you know, a half a pound of mushrooms or a hundred hits of acid, you go to prison under minimum mandatory sentencing laws for a longer time than if you kill someone, yeah, second degree crazy. murder. Now, I've always thought, like, what the hell is that about? Why are we so afraid of these substances? And I think one of the reasons is that these substances are about, they force you to confront your monsters. Yep. Yep. They force you That's to focus on your fears. Correct. Right. Yep. And so, you know, people say, well, you know, people go crazy. Yeah. They go sure. crazy because people of go what's crazy. been built up. Exactly. Because Absolutely. they haven't looked at this stuff, mm -hmm. whatever it is. They're running away from their fears and suddenly, boom, there it is right in front of them. They can't take it. They've got a, an unstable personality structure and this is like a, a little earthquake and everything comes down. I'm not advocating the use of hallucinogens mm -hmm. to anyone who's listening to this, but I am saying that a culture that incorporates them into the culture that, in, that um, honors this process, to me, is a healthier culture right. and probably a culture that's not building pyramids. Mm -hmm using slave and labor they're building they're living in huts they're sitting around having fun with their kids telling stories having sex uh you know going fishing when they're hungry right. and then they die mm -hmm. and it's no big deal right because they're not in denial but they've lived a different kind of life because death is accepted into that life yes. whereas we're in this situation where we avoid any indication of the reality of death, mm -hmm. thereby convincing ourselves that we'll live forever like gods. Mm -hmm. And then when death does come, we feel 
like, oh shit, what I, right. what it's happened? Like what did train. I do? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's a big surprise. Mm-hmm. Hey, before I forget, let's let's talk about your projects because uh, I ten, the problem with speaking tangentially is right. you forget That's all okay. the stuff. I, you know, I so speak I speak a lot about my projects, which is which is really flattering. Well, just and, so people and great, people who want to know, know this, more this about you, really let, tell them where to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I have I do two things. I do a um, I have a larger project called Order of the Good Death, which is writers and academics and uh, funeral professionals who are trying to do exactly what we're talking about, bring death, bring the conversation about death back into society through Mm. various means. And then um, another thing I do is a web series called Ask a Mortician, which is just me sitting in front of a camera being kind of a a goon answering questions that people have about the funeral industry. So are you sort of like a death nerd? Is that oh, a term? Oh, sure. I, it's not. Um, well, I mean, it, you can attach death to anything, which I have found. Yeah. De- death expert is another word. Deaths, um, no, that's hard to pronounce. Expert. It is, yeah. but that's kind of the you know. Sounds sounds the, Spanish. Yeah, death expert. That's kind of. The, I mean, the funny part is that it's really hard to pronounce. I think, and then having you know, what's funny is that I said that jokingly. I think it was about Mary Roach or somebody that I had um, helped me with one of my episodes. Oh, Mary Roach. Yeah, yeah, she, she, she's yeah, great. She's yeah, like she's very, stuff. very supportive. She's very nice. And what was and her her book about death? Um, stiff. Stiff, yes, and, and then is Bonk funny. is about sexuality, mm-hmm. and she's writing another one now. Yes. One word yeah, title. Yeah, I, can't I can't remember. remember what it is, but I think it's about the alimentary canal. It's about how food moves through the body. I think. Oh. I think it's like swallow or something. It's got to be one is, syllable. It can't be swallow though. That's that's not probably not what she's going for. Um, yeah. But yeah, she's been very helpful. And I, I said, you know, she's a death expert just to be funny. And then on NPR and on several interviews that I've had since then they've like introduced me as a death expert or they thought really? that I like self-proclaimed <laughs> really? as a death that's gotten expert. into your, your bio you know? and I was like oh that's you know that's a bit let's put that with a little ironic distance yeah. because that's embarrassing um but yeah I, I, oh definitely death nerd. I mean I just I I'm I'm a bit of a we talked about being a jack of all trades before yeah um, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades I think with death um in that there there are certain things that I would consider myself very, very well versed on. But more importantly, I consider it my job to just be able to talk about pretty much anything within the realm of death and dying. Mm. You know, so if anybody has, um, you know, like with the Egyptians, I can give you, you know, the canopic jars and the way that they pulled the brain out with a little hook through the nose, you know, oh, and I can give you these sort of really? fun, I can give you, I can give you a conversation about it, um, without necessarily being the guy, the Smithsonian, who's an expert on right. ancient Egyptian. So a hook would you know, pull the brain yeah, out mm-hmm. through the nose? Yeah. I, I would have just assumed it would cut right through the brain. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly the, yeah. the process, but that's sort of a, that's one of the sort of titillating facts that they they tell you do you know the only nobel prize in um in science that was ever given to a portuguese was uh, to the doctor who invented the frontal lobotomy oh yeah and you know how they did that they had this thing like sort of like an ice pick that went in through the eye socket curled oh. up into the brain and then they would just like, just like move it around and kill stuff. so the embal- in embalming there's a thing called the trocar and embalming is is interesting because it has this sort of scientific, you know, idea about it. Like it's very always oh, people in lab coats and morticians or highly trained professionals. The trocar is just this long pointed metal stick that goes in right above your belly button and just sort of indiscriminately stabs 
at all of your internal organs. So you go up, stab, 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 and then you point down, stab, 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 and then it sucks out all of the, so it's, it's a, it's a point with a little vacuum on the end. Mm. So it sucks out all of the fluid as much as possible <laughs> out of your thoracic and your internal, internal cavities. And then you reverse the process and then pour chemicals oh, into nice, it, which nice. is the preservation. Um, but I, but I like, I love the idea of, something that's sort of perceived to be, you know, Nobel prize winning or something yeah. that's, you know, yeah. very scientific, a great, great advance, yeah. but really it's just like indiscriminate stabbing inside yeah. a human body. You know, it's, it's like scorched earth. Your, your, <laughs> your story reminds me of a great book called uh, pilgrim at Tinker Creek. You ever heard of that mm -hmm. book? Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I wish I, I can't quite remember the author is written by a woman. It's a poetic, beautiful book about, about just sort of hanging out uh, in this farm with a creek running through it and paying. I mean, I think she was probably tripping, actually, <laughs> because it was. it's just like she pays intense attention. Mm -hmm. And so there will be things like, you know, she's sitting, you know, reading or something. And then she'll say, well, in the, in the cubic meter of earth beneath me, there are you know, 700 million living things. And, mm. and she goes through all the different species and all the, how they all interact. Mm. And, you know, and she, at one point she's, she's crouched next to the stream and she's looking at this frog mm -hmm. and the frog is just sitting there and not moving. And so she decides she's just going to wait and, you know, sort of outstare this frog. And she's staring at the frog and the frog's staring at her and the frog sort of starts changing color. You know, initially it's really vibrant green and then it starts getting gray and, and changes color and its eyes sort of get strangely dimmed and clouded. And, and then suddenly the frog implodes, just collapses mm -hmm. into itself. And then the skin floats away. And so she's like completely freaked out, right? And she goes back home and starts doing all this research and she finds that in this part of the country, there's a, a water spider that lives by coming under frogs, injects, uh, bites the frog in the, on the abdomen, injects a chemical that paralyzes the frog immediately. Then it injects another chemical into the frog's body that uh, dissolves everything inside the frog except the skin. Uh -huh. And then once everything's dissolved, it sucks it all up. <laughs> <laughs> nice, huh? Yeah. Beautiful image. Yeah. Pilgrim huh. at Tinker Creek. Check wow. it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of, that's a little, so it's like a little, a little trocar. Yeah. A little trocar Very similar. You know, I was huh. thinking, um, it's something I, I often, th that strikes me when, when you hear, you know, a 72 year old man lost his life in a car accident. Mm -hmm. I always think, he didn't lose his life. Yeah. He lost what was left of his life, right. which probably wasn't that much anyhow. You know, it's such a funny expression. Um, do you feel you're talking about emotional engagement or your defenses and stuff? And do you feel when someone young dies, does that affect you much more when you're working with a family or with a, a body of someone young? Right. I mean, it definitely, it does just because there's, uh, there's an aspect and I, I think I do better at this uh, obviously now, but there's an aspect of course of memento mori of like, Oh, look at this young person. It's you. 
you know, and, the, and, the, and that's what you try and stay away from is, is over identifying with anybody. Have you ever way. worked with a body who really did look like you? Not, not somebody who really did look like me, but definitely somebody who really did look like somebody I knew oh. and friends of mine. So oh, I think, and it's right. mostly, it's mostly young men. So right. it's men that I knew from college, um, who, you know, there'll be a, somebody in San Francisco or in Los Angeles who was a, who was a drug addict or was in a car accident and they're 20, 27, 28. And they just really look like, yeah. you know, John, my friend, you know, yeah. or whoever it is. Right. And you really have to be like, Ooh, and you have to think about it. It, it raises questions of, do I want to take care of them Yeah, when they die? Would I be able to do that? Well, I was going to ask you that. Do friends say to you, hey, if I die, will you please deal with yes. it? And, and how does that work? And strangely, in the industry, it seems to be that the party line is you don't take care of your own. Right. Because it would be so much harder to protect yourself emotionally. Right. right? But I, I, I completely disagree. Right. I think that the thought, the thought of, and maybe it's because I'm not an embalmer. Maybe it's because I don't practice primarily embalming, which is a much more invasive process. Mm. Um, but the thought for me of my mother or my father or my, any of my close friends being handled by somebody else is really abhorrent to me. It really just knowing what I know now, I just want to be the one who does it. And it's a great honor for me. And it's a great ritual for me. Um, and it would be, you know, I want to be the one with, and this, which is something that I'm trying to bring to other people too. Um, so I work in, in home funerals and the idea there is that the family takes care of the dead person. So, if you die in your home, your friends and family come and they wash you and they shroud you and they keep you in the home and they're in charge of the actual physical, tangible preparation of your body. Does everyone shit themselves when they die? Not everyone. No, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically, uh, it's an issue of what's in your body right. when you die. Cause your sphincter relaxes. Yes, and whatever's because all there. of your muscles, you know, and there's right. also purge that comes out of the mouth or urine or whatever it is. Anything that's being held, any fluids that are being held. And do men get erections the when they die? I, mean, um, I know I read this thing about when they right, hanged. right. It's called like the the Lazarus effect. It right. just has to do again with like blood flow and biology, and that, mm. yeah, that does happen. But it's not. It's first of all, it's not as exciting as one would think. It's not like you know. It's, 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 <laughs> I wouldn't think of, it's very. Well, well, you know, but people do. People, yeah. you know, when I do ask a mortician, people are always like, "Oh man, let's you know, this is going to be the thing that really, really, you know, is super salacious and exciting." No, do you think that? Do you think that, how can I say this? Is there something inherently, is there some inherent link between sexuality and death? Or is oh, it just that absolutely. we deny both of them absolutely. and therefore? It's, it's Eros and Thanatos. I think there absolutely is because, I mean, well, how long do we have? Um, I think that there's a sense of, well, first of all, when you have sex, there's the idea of sublimation, the idea that you're completely, you don't need to be this person who's living on your own because living on your own is this kind of cruel experience. Right. The fact that we're all on this planet, but we're still individuals. Really, it really, it sucks, you know, because mm. we're in our, trapped in our brains, trapped in our physical flesh, mm. trapped in our own experience. Trapped in our individuality, trapped in our individuality which again which is, is what America is all about. Yes, which is a huge burden yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways. So, when you have sex, there's, there's the idea that, you know, psychologically for that moment, you are joined with another person and they share your burden in a way. So even if you can't get in each, inside each other's brains and experience, you can at least get inside each other somehow, even just physically. And that emotional and mental experience can be, 
can be a release in that way. Um, and there's also just the sort of broader connection of the fact that you have sex to create life. And when you create life, you create death. So, you know, uh, women and fertility and all of those issues with, you know, I'm a woman. If I give birth to a child, you know, I'm, I'm mother earth, I'm Gaia, I'm creating life, but I'm also creating this little creature that's going to die. Right. That's doomed to decay. And that only and death. lives by killing a lot of other things. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. That only, yeah. that only lives by consuming and destruction and death. Right. Right. Um, and so someone had sex with me, which is, you know, sex, there's sex for pleasure, but there's also sex for that creation of life and death. And those, all those big issues are kind of at stake every time. Can, I don't, I don't mean to, to pry, so feel free not to answer any questions. But, um, I'm just wondering as you're talking about this and sexuality and does, how, I mean, I don't even know if you're straight or what your, your thing is, but how does, how does this affect your personal life? Like, do you find people, like, you start to get involved and then you talk about work and they freak out or, or they, or do you get like, you know, people with these dark, you know, sort of like, right. do you ever get people coming on to you because of what oh, you do so, for yes, a living? Yeah, certainly, and, certainly that, but that I can pick up on pretty quickly. Uh, um, you know, if people, if people are bring up and it's usually, it's really weird because they think that the way they're going to get in with me is to couch that conversation in like necrophilia or, you know, things like, Oh, well, I'm going to ask about sort of salacious sex and death connection questions real quickly. Like I'm doing now. No, no, no. But you, you at least <laughs> waited, you know, 40 minutes into the conversation to, and you're also a friend and I, trust you i didn't meet uh, you at a you know a bar just now oh, well, you decided careful, to go straight careful. into don't, it. don't make any assumptions <laughs> make an ass out of you and me um yeah yeah people sort of come in and i can pick up on that pretty quickly um mm-hmm. it does it does affect things for a while really i think the biggest effect that it had is that for a while after i first started working in the funeral industry which was about five years ago i was working at a crematory in, in Oakland and I worked there for a year and I just went there every day and it was me by myself burning bodies, having had no connection with death prior to no, no physical mm. interaction right with out dead of bodies right out of, yeah, right out. Of, mm. I actually did that before I went to mortuaries. Oh, wow. so I wanted to be in the industry smart to see if I really could handle right. it. So I did that for a year and then I went back to mortuary school. Um, so these were my first real, real dead bodies, was interacting with them, burning them, you know, cremating them, having interactions with the family. So it was this kind of high level stuff that I had never really emotionally dealt with before. And so sex and sexuality became very, very desperate for me in a way, oh. um, like a sort of a, a really high level longing uh-huh. for it right. and, and for different parts of it because all of a sudden I was, you know, talking about the monsters that live in you, yeah. you know, faced with how short my life was and how, what a not particularly compelling job I had done of living it up to that point. Um, especially with, with love and sexuality and the way that I was handling it. And I used to treat love as very, I used to, tr- I used to treat people not very well, people that I was involved with. Um, I would, you know, I wouldn't, I was kind of the, like, you know, like you, the image of like the shitty dude who kind of doesn't call you back and, and isn't that mm. great a boyfriend. I was kind of like that in female form. Mm. Um, but then when this happened, I was all of a sudden faced with this, like, ah, you know, I, I, I need you, you know, which is kind of, it just turned me into kind of a different person with regards to mm. my more of a yearning for yeah. connection. And yeah. Yearning for depth. connection and yearning for physical contact and yearning for all of these things, yeah. which is, you know, which to me more than anything proves the connection between sex and death um, and proves how they're 
at least at least psychologically intertwined. Um, and I've really, I mean, the past couple of years I've gotten, I think I'm only now <laughs> kind of figuring it out and getting better at it and getting good at it and coming to terms at with integrating at integrating it. Yeah. Integrating it and right. not letting the way that I feel about death and my relationship with death affect what I want sexually and affect what I, what I want from another person. Um, Although who's to say it shouldn't. Right. No, no, it definitely should. But I think, I think, I think just what you said, integration, like I'm, be- yeah. I'm better at it. It's, it's more healthy. <laughs> it's healthier. I don't know if I mentioned the other day uh, when we were, taping or, or maybe after, but I, for a while I was doing research for a PhD uh, dissertation on, um, I wanted to study the, the psychological profile of doctors who deal with death on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So I was looking at oncologists and intensive care specialists mm-hmm. um, because I, I wanted to get a sense of what sort of personality uh, could withstand that, could, could, right. could make it long term versus what sort of personality tended to burn out quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for anyone listening, you know, in psychology doctoral program casting about for something to research, I, I'm telling you, I think this is a really interesting topic and with a lot of, um, financial possibilities because medical schools and hospitals make huge investments in these doctors. And if they burn out after a few years, that's a major loss. So the idea was to to develop a screening mechanism to use in medical school when people were choosing their specializations, just to be able to say, look, you know, your personality structure tends to not do well in oncology. You might want to consider, you know, pediatrics or whatever. Um, and thereby save people a lot of trouble like you did. You went and worked there before, right. which, you know. It was so funny. They, when I when I started mortuary school, I went in there and there was really, we started with like, I think like 50 students in our class and graduated probably 10. Yeah. A year and a half, and that's two years A year later. and a half, two yeah. years later. Yeah. And when we go, the, really, literally the screening they did for us is we went in to the like health science campus and they did a physical, like a really basic physical. And they had us check boxes on a form. Like, do you, I think, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, do you get real angry? Or like, do you, you know, just like really basic, like, are you insane question, you know, questions like, are you actually, which, which didn't work that well because quite a few people who were actually insane right. slipped right on through the oh, cracks. Yeah, they tend to um, do that. Yeah. And so just the people who got in and, and literally there was probably like five or six people that I was like, yes, I feel like you should be dealing with death and with grief and with these families who are in this time. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that you can handle this and you're a rational adult. And the others were just, and the others not were just so. off the yeah. rails. A lot of, and a lot of, and some of them were just kind of adults, but then there were some that were just like, who are you and who is going to allow you to do this. Hey, I see a sitcom here. Mortuary school. Mortuary you know? school. Death school. Death yeah. school confidential. <laughs> death squad. Yeah. yeah. And you could definitely, uh, I imagine that would be the sort of thing that would attract very interesting personalities. It is. Yeah. yeah it's definitely, it's some, and it's some people who are just very, very sweet and very helpful and very, mm. you know, there's a second career or whatever it is. And then some people just, just weirdos yeah. like, and, and, you, know, I, I, you know I'm kind of weird so I would never call anybody a weirdo but I would I would call some of these people <laughs> weirdos you know I'm just like what, what? a weirdos weirdo yeah a weirdo I guess a weirdo yeah. for the connoisseur of weirdness <laughs> 
But I, you reminded me of this whole thing with the oncologist and all that, because what I noticed, I spent about a year in hospitals mm-hmm. doing research, interviewing people and hanging out. And one of the things I noticed was that there was a sort of very, uh, how can I put this, sort of a turbocharged sexual atmosphere mm-hmm. in those areas. And I think it's because of the phenomenon that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, I, wouldn't you know? be, I wouldn't be surprised. When you're around people who are dying, when you're reminded that yes. it is there, no matter how much you try to avoid it, it's there. It's right over your shoulder every day. That changes the way you deal with things. It, mm-hmm. it, it, and I think what, what I guess I felt or the way I identified it was that the, um, th- this whole impulse to put it off till later. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It goes away. Exactly. It's like, there is no later. It, yeah, that's do it. What, if you want to have sex with her, do it. If you want to, you know, whatever it is you want to do, do it. Yes. Don't think you're going to do it tomorrow. It felt very, yeah. it felt very now. And then yeah. it was felt very now and, which is, which in some ways is, is incredible and inspiring and like, yes, now let's all go out now. But right. there was also, there was a desperation behind it. And yeah. I think it was because it was, it was slightly pathological just because I hadn't mm. been necessarily dealing with it. So all of a sudden it was like, now, yeah. you know, it was this, it was this feeling of like, you know, drink and be merry for tomorrow. You will die. Right. You will die. And, and, Time's winged chariot hurrying. Uh, yes. the, what's that? Do you know that? Yes. But it's do, yeah. uh, to his Andrew Marvel to his coy maiden or something. Or, yeah. Yes. There's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of good like old death poetry that <laughs> yeah. sneaks into the into the rhetoric. But yeah, it's it's yeah. There's definitely and it's something that I'm still. It's not something that I struggle with now, but it's something with, that I struggle with defining. What's that? With what we're talking the, about, the sexuality. Here. Yeah, it's something that I struggle with. You know, some things are very easy to put. Even even things that are kind of complex, they can be broken down and explained pretty easily. Right. But this one is is a little bit harder to explain. Mm-hmm. And the connection between eros and thanatos and sex and death and and how it works for a human and how it worked for me is still a little bit hard to to define and to to explain in a way that makes sense to people who haven't necessarily experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. It experienced it. And it, I think, you know, whatever it is, we're talking about being alive, mm-hmm. you know, being alive with an awareness of death, which is actually being alive. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. I almost feel like Western society by, by isolating us so much from death, it's all about numbing us. It's all about, you know, for example, I was talking to a friend who's taking um, antidepressants and and she was saying she said, you know, I always thought that antidepressants took away the sadness. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in my case, they sort of do, but they also take away the happiness. Right. They, they don't. It's not antidepressant. It's anti feeling. Yes. It's anti sensation. Something that that I did. So in an attempt in my years after my first year at the crematory, one thing that I did come up with in an attempt to explain this phenomenon is something I call the ecstasy of decay. Um, and what the ecstasy of decay is, is the idea that if you're faced with the most grotesque part of life with decay, with death, with sorrow, with grief, the, the most primal triggers, mm. um, which is decay in, in the universe. It opens you up on either side of the spectrum. So most people are living yeah. in this sort of middle world. Right, they're living, exactly. in, you know, they're living between two bars reduced that they kind range. of reduced range. Yeah. So they're sort of bumbling between those two things. Right. And when this happened to me, all of a sudden the range 
vastly expanded. Back to hallucinogens. Yeah, exa- yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's very sensation. similar. I think yeah. it's a similar effect. Yeah. Uh, so vastly. So I was all of a sudden there were higher highs than I had ever, you know, I would see a sunset and just burst into tears. Right. Just absolutely burst or see, you know, a, a frog or the, the earth beneath right. my feet and just right. be like, Oh, the universe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <it was> amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. but then I would also, you know, that with yeah. that, opening you got to pay, up, for, um, that. You gotta pay yeah. for that. comes the opposite side of the spectrum, yeah. which is, Oh my God, I'm, you know, staring at the base of the abyss, you know, <laughs> into the nothingness, nihilistic, horis- you know, horrific existence of yeah. humanity, you know, yeah. and it was sort of like you, you had to have one to have the other. I think that's true. Uh And so I've worked, I've worked my way back in to the middle now, but with knowledge, like I can, I can still see it in the distance on both sides. You know, I, do you ever read, uh, uh, what's his name? Choi Yum Trungpa? No. <laughs> That's a great Good to call up that name. Yeah, name, well, name, well your, name your next cat. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was a Tibetan monk. Uh, interesting guy, actually. He was one of the first uh, Tibetan monks to really get popular in the mm-hmm. West. He, he wrote a bunch of books. I think Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, or something okay. like that is the one I'm referring to. But then he, he sort of discredited in some ways because it turned out when he died that he was an alcoholic and he was sleeping with all all the women around him and all this stuff right but there's of course there's a great tradition uh in specifically in tibetan buddhism Mm -hmm. of seeking enlightenment through excess Mm -hmm. of you know pleasure and everything Mm -hmm. anyway the the point i was going to make is that um i read that that book years ago and I, i remember one thing specifically from it which is that he says you know people think that enlightenment is constant bliss and it's not enlightenment is is much more complicated than that because in in a state of enlightenment is is balance you're Mm -hmm. in a center but you're in a center where you no matter how happy you are you never forget the suffering in the world and no matter how much you're suffering you never forget the beauty and joy and you know wonder of the world so you're in the center but it's sort of the way you were just describing it. You're in the center, but you can still see yes. the extremes. You never Absolutely. forget. So your range is huge because you've been to both those mm-hmm. extremes, but now you're just trying to keep your balance, but it's, it's balanced in a much large, in a center of a much larger range right. than most people can deal with. I agree. I, I was just in, we were talking about how we're both writing books now too. Mm-hmm. I was in Hawaii where I'm from, but on a different Island in this writer's cabin for about a month. Just, oh, just, nice. I actually just got back from, oh, from there. That sounds great. I know it was, it was great. You, but was so, it, you should actually, it's a really amazing I've little, never been little to cabin Hawaii. in, in Javi, which is a little, um, a little town at the North tip of the big Island. Oh. Um, and, what I found, which was so interesting, is that I was there alone for almost a month, totally alone. I would walk into town every day and there would be some people, um, but I was alone and I was just kind of, for the first time probably in my life, I was just, every day was like, okay. Hmm. You know, I would wake up and I would be like, now I'm going to, you know, make some soup. And now I'm going to sit in this chair and there was no... If if uh, two years ago, if you said go to a cabin in the woods for three weeks to a month by yourself, see what happens, 
the highs and lows, I can't even imagine. I cannot even tell you the like demons that would come in and the mm. joys that would come in and the ecstasies. And this time it was just like, I was just there. Mm-hmm. I was just, and I don't want to say I was present or whatever, but I was just, I could see, I could see, I could imagine the highs and lows that I could have, but I wasn't actually having them. Right. Um, which I, I think hopefully shows me that the, the year we're talking about paying it every day, the years of doing this every day have brought me to this point where I can kind of just be with myself and I'm not afraid. Yeah. Because those highs and lows also are kind of a distraction from yourself. Right. Are, are saying like, oh my God, being with myself and actually looking at myself is so painful mm-hmm. and so difficult because I have to admit bigger truths about the world and how terrifying it is <laughs> that just being with yourself is incredibly difficult. But it's funny how t- you say how terrifying it is. I, I was thinking this morning when, you know, I was thinking about coming here and talking to you and I was remembering I imagine you probably have this sort of thing as well. I, I remember as a child mm-hmm. um, having a very strong sense that I remembered where I was before I was born hmm. and having nothing specific, but having a very strong feeling that I'm alive now. I'm going to have this life. I'm going to get old and die, but never forget that where I was before was was great was happy was wonderful because and I could sort of look forward and see like there's going to be a lot of pressure there's going to be a lot of temptation to forget this you're I guess what I'm saying is I had an awareness that life was going to take me further away from the point of origin Mm -hmm. and being close to that point of origin I could remember what was on the other side Mm -hmm. and it was great and I knew that it was going to be really important for me to remember that but it was going to get increasingly harder as I got older and I I remember right through my teens having that recurring like reminder don't forget don't forget because i could feel it slipping away you know don't forget this wow that's yeah. very that's very romantic i love yeah. that i don't know that i necessarily experienced that but i think that's a very well what i meant is, nice is that you probably had something in childhood where you were thinking to yourself don't forget this mm-hmm. you know don't forget because you know once you get enough intelligence to sort of see the trajectory of life mm-hmm. that life takes you away from certain right. insights that you have as a child then uh, certainly in my case I, I you know I, I even remember writing it somewhere and now I could never find where I'd written it of course but I, I remember thinking like don't forget this because if you forget then you're fucked because then you'll be afraid to die. Right. There's no reason to be afraid right. to die. There's there's really no reason to be afraid to die. That's true. And I mean, there's reasons to be afraid to die that have to do with how you're living your life. Right. You know, there's reasons to be afraid to die because you don't have any of your shit together at all. Yeah. And your family's going to be left in the lurch when you die. And right. there's reasons to be afraid to die because sure. you haven't Practical accomplished anything. Stuff. You haven't you haven't accomplished yeah. things that you want to accomplish or travel or where you want to travel. You know what? I've 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 mm-hmm. got a little insight into recently since our book came out. And mm-hmm. suddenly, you know, I'm doing all these interviews mm-hmm. and I'm, you know, like got this tiny little taste of fame or whatever right. um, is <laughs> I never thought about this before. But it's like I could imagine if you're like, let's say you're George Clooney, mm-hmm. you know, most people would say, fuck, you're George Clooney, man. You've, you've had it all. You've, you know, you, you can die a happy mm-hmm. man. Well, actually, 
I don't know George Clooney, but um, I could understand how somebody like that would be like, oh, I can't die now. I'm George Clooney. I'm having a great time. Right. You know, it's like, well, if I weren't doing anything interesting, then the hell with it. But, you know, I'm going fly fishing with Gorbachev next week. Right. You know, I can't die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're at the greatest party ever, you know. Right. Well, for me, it's it's kind of like that in the sense that I set out to do this project with death and to to have these people and coming together and then presenting death in a new way and doing these things. And every day I'm like, I'm wondering at what point I can die. You know, at what point right. will like the seed be planted when will enough it be done? Yeah. that I can, you know, like, like, Oh, I've made, you know, 10 ask a mortician videos, or I've written this much of the book, or if I put out the book, can I die then? Like right. if I, you know, if yeah. I do a, a TV special, can I die then? If I do, you know, it's, it's always a question of when have I done enough to fulfill this thing that I feel so desperately inside yeah. needs to be done. And that sort of plagues me in that way. Like do you, when, is this a lifelong project for you? I think so. Yeah. You're I, not going to become a kindergarten teacher. No, I, no, no, <laughs> I can't. And the thing is that like the, as soon as I figured out what I was doing, which was almost immediately after I en- entered the industry about five years ago, what was your BA in by the way? Uh, medieval history. Ah. from uh, University of Chicago. That's, so, oh, that's that's a serious program. It's a, yes, it's a serious program. It's a masochistic program. A lot of death in the medieval times. Yes, exactly. Very, so that, that was my academic conscious. interest yeah. was was medieval death rituals. Really? Oh. Yeah, so I had a kind of... Well, I had this academic background in it. And then when I started with the tangible aspect of actually being in the industry and working with dead bodies, it almost immediately clicked for me. It was like, oh, here we go. It's an interdisciplinary. We're putting these two things together. And... I can be really good at both of these things, but what I can actually be good at and what can actually be my contribution is putting these two things together Mm. and bringing some deeper thoughts and questions and academia to the very day-to-day process of being a mortician and death in general. So that's what I feel like is my thing. And the second that it clicked into place, there hasn't been a day where it hasn't consumed me since then. And some days it consumes me in a very light, fun, isn't this awesome, I get to do what I love way. Consumes me. Isn't that a great phrase? Yes. Consu- you know? yeah, it consumes, consumes me. me. Yes. Yeah, and then yeah. other days it consumes me in a like, oh my God, I'm I'm so consumed way, yeah. you know, in, 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 in the negative yeah. way. Because it's it's there's a lot of pressure I feel to, pre- to completely self-imposed. It's not like, you know, culture is like, Caitlin, you must, you owe it to us to do this massive death project. No, but you've found a way to impact the culture in a healing way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important work. If I you can so. pull that off or at least get the ball rolling, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have right. to do it all yourself, but right. just, I, I really think, you know, maybe every generation people think this, but I've never felt it until now. Okay. I, I mentioned before I'm 50, right? So I've never felt this until now, but I feel like, like this culture is at a tipping point yes. where there's a, a line we quote in the book from uh, Arthur Miller, the playwright who was briefly married to uh, Marilyn Monroe. He said, an, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at that moment in, yep. in American culture where we're like, fuck, man, marriage, that doesn't work the way we've been doing mm-hmm. it. Banking doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Government doesn't work. You know, our, our foreign policy. Policy is biting us in the ass all over the place. Like every death, certainly. Yeah, work. exactly. And death is right there. We are the whole fucking thing isn't working. Mm-hmm. And I think for the first time, people are looking and saying, "Wow, my kids 
are not going to have a better life than I did. Mm-hmm. We're on the downslope yeah, well, now. What would give you that idea? What, like what, yeah. anything in culture would give you the idea your right. kids' life are going to be Exactly. Better. I mean, even if your kids like get a PhD, that still doesn't mean they're going to get a job, yeah. you know? And so I think there's there's a feeling, you know, and, and again, it's the life-death thing, mm-hmm. right? Because that's, a, that's about death. It's about the death of American culture, the death of the American dream, the death of the whole, mm-hmm. you know, of hope and all that. But there's life in that because people are casting about saying, well, fuck, okay, that doesn't work. What mm-hmm. does work? Right. And it, it creates an urgency, I think, to confront the monsters mm-hmm. that before we were running away from because we thought we could get up, we thought we could outrun them. Right. And now suddenly we're saying, <laughs> no, they're going to catch us. You can never outrun them. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's yeah. the thing that never, and that's, and that's again to the hubris. Like you can never outrun them ever. Right. And I don't, I don't think that what I am doing would be working if we weren't at a cultural tipping point. I don't think that people would be reacting to me and what I'm saying the way that yeah. they are. Right. If or they me. weren't. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. And that's what exactly. joins our projects, exactly. I think. Yeah. yeah. And they wouldn't, you know, because I'm, I'm putting this out there and I really strongly believe it, but I could just be putting it out there into the void. Right. And there'd I, be no resonance. Yeah, there'd be no resonance yeah. if it wasn't the right time. Right. If it was, if people weren't like, like, oh, you're saying we should do death differently? I've been thinking about that because I've been, right. you know, I saw my mother die and it was the most horrific experience of right. my entire life. And it was her, her death was wrong. How she died was wrong. How the medical system handled it was wrong. How her funeral was, was wrong. None of it had meaning or resonance with me. I feel out to sea now. I'm worried about my own death and my own mortality. Right. You there, you right. seem to be saying something, you know, right. okay, I'm going to, I'm going to join up with you for now because I feel like at least you're talking about this with me. Do you get support from, I'm sure you get a lot of enthusiastic mm-hmm. support from people who see your videos or, mm-hmm. or read your blog, but do you get support from anyone in the business that you're in? Is I there, do, strangely, which is oh, a real, good. which is a real, has been kind of a shock to me because I am in this place where there's these people who are outside the industry, people who are, who are death, death midwives, people who do home funerals, people who do green burials, people who do midwives. Yes. Who want to, who want to change, go back to a a much simpler time of how we deal with death. And they're usually outside of the industry. And then there are people who are in hardcore in the mortuary science students who are really hardcore in the traditional American funeral industry. And in a way I, I went through the whole rigmarole with the traditional American funeral industry Oh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm rapping on the table, yeah. which is why he's just, he's just looked at me with, a, I can hear it in the headphones. Okay, yeah. so I, use, I use my hands to illustrate. It's, it's a shame you can't see me illustrating the, <laughs> dramatically with my hands, drawing Venn diagrams of yeah. the traditional funeral industry. And it's, it's very sex nerdish. Funeral industry. Um, or death nerdish. Death Sorry, nerdish, you're yes. the death nerd. I'm um, the sex nerd. And, uh, so there's these two groups and yeah. it, for a while it's sort of been, Sorry, that was that was a mistake. For a while, it's been narrow the twain shall meet. Right, you know they can't. And you're the together. you're the bridge. Uh, well, I I I I like to. That was the idea was that I would be the bridge, um, but. I'm I'm sort of at this point. I've I've managed. I feel I feel a little devious here, but both sides for the most part seem to be okay with me. That's fantastic. You know, and they're kind of just like, I think they're, they're all kind of like, let's see how this goes right. in a way. Like they probably, <laughs> neither of them probably totally trust me. Right. Um, but 
so far I've managed to really get some really enthusiastic, genuine support from both. That's wonderful. Because I think that I think that the people there's a lot of people in the traditional funeral industry who know that we could be doing a better job, who know that there's much more out there and want are open to that and aren't so set in their ways and it's not informing their self-worth so much that they can allow for things. And then there's people outside the funeral industry who know that it's difficult to exact change from the outside that you need in some ways to rehabilitate from the inside. We're not, we're not going to burn down the entire death system in America and walk away and start a new, like an old growth forest, you know, like you have to, you have to do some change from the inside. Um, so do, I do. Do you have anything to do with the military? Do, do bodies returning from war go into a different system or? Well, it, it, it depends. Um, I, I do a lot with veterans. Um, but as far as, as far as like actual combat deaths, those go through a different system. What um, do you do with veterans? Well, um, there's some, there's some availability for, um, for a, they get a burial plot in a national cemetery. Uh, they get flags. If they're a certain rank, they get, you know, the, the guard and the presentation of the flag right, and the 21 right. gun salute. Um, so it depends on what rank they were. I wonder how their sense of death differs, you know, cause they're, mm-hmm. you know, again, that's, it's one of those great, uh, isolating things. We send them off right. to deal with the death every day and, yeah. and then come back and here pretend it doesn't exist yeah. again. Which is, know? which is really grotesque yeah. the way that we treat it's people coming back from war and, yeah. and PTSD, especially. Right. And, and, right. um, how, how they, how anybody thinks that a, a young man or woman can grow up in American culture with just complete death denial and then be thrown into the Middle East, thrown into Afghanistan or thrown into Iraq or wherever in just, just complete war zone with death and destruction and, and, and actual corpses and blood and guts and all of these things and, and constant fear of actually dying constant, constant 24 hour fear of being killed and having their life just wiped out. And the context for that just be like, we're fighting the good fight. Yeah. Boys, young yeah. men, young women, women, you know, we're fighting the good fight. Right. And then just plop them back. Right back into the denial. Into again. the denial culture <sighs> and, and everybody around yeah. them just saying, you know, oh, thank you for your service. Yeah. Or even worse, just hero. not acknowledging them because yeah. they not, don't agree with the, with fighting or the war, which is justifiable, but you know, not acknowledging these, these people yeah. coming back, how they think that's going to be okay is just mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I could talk all day with you. This is really, really important stuff you're doing. I, I've, I've oh, enjoyed this little insight into your world. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we can do it again sometime and talk sure, about medieval absolutely. death rituals. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother hour. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting stuff. Um, Ask a Mortician is on YouTube. Yeah. It's on YouTube and then order of the good death.com. Um, is you can go there and then we're on obviously Facebook and Twitter and all those. Great. All those other death denial mechanisms. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there's another <laughs> all one. All those other ways to keep yeah, it Yeah, the internet's forever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All right. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you so much. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.